Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. My co-host, Joe, is on leave this week, uh, so I have an interview for you. I recently talked with Ryan Jones of the University of Oregon. His new book is Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling. Uh, So this is a fascinating book. And uh, I think we had a fascinating chat about uh, the history, uh, specifically the 20th century history of whaling uh, and how that factors into uh, Russian history, the history of the Soviet Union, but also global history as well. Uh, a word of caution that this this interview will, of course, discuss whaling, which uh, is going to have some graphic details in it. So be advised uh, on that count. Uh, but on the other hand, I want to stress that this will not just be a parade of, um, of horrors. Uh, there's a lot of interesting historical and cultural information in here as well. So without further ado, uh, let's go straight to the interview. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. So your book concerns whaling, which humans have been engaging in for thousands of years, and yet 20th century whaling stands out in rather appalling ways. Can you set the scene for us regarding 20th century whaling and and what truly sets it apart from the sort of 19th century whaling uh, that many of us are probably familiar with from the likes of Moby Dick? Yeah, that's right, Rob. I mean, 19th century whaling, which was dominated by the Americans, uh, was a really low tech enterprise that still managed to manage to sweep nearly the entire Earth, Pacific, Indian, Atlantic Ocean, and you know, had a pretty massive impact on certain whale species like sperm whales. Others it left entirely untouched, especially the fast whales, uh, the big whales that many people would be familiar with, humpback whales. Uh, blue whales, uh, fin whales, etc., and major parts of the ocean that were just off limits to people uh, working with sail technology, like the Antarctic, which is, um, is the place where the uh, the most whales uh, used to live, at least. Um, and so, 20th century whaling was was um, far, I think, far less talked about, um, far less romanticized and written about. There is no Herman Melville for the 20th century industrial era. And yet it was, by an order of magnitude, more devastating uh, for most whale species. Uh, do, you want, do you want me to talk a little bit about 
about the technology. I'm mindful of not just going on and on with my answers and boring oh, your readers. No, no. I think we'd, we'd all love to, to have a little uh, technological background. Uh, my next question, in fact, was going to be about the Stern Slipway and yeah, what it right. was and why it was so essential to modern uh-huh. whaling. Yeah. I mean, the the technology, there, there was really a, a major change in the technological implementations of whaling at the end of the 19th century, mostly brought about by Norwegians. Uh, who had been whaling in their nearshore waters, but perfected a few things like the exploding harpoon gun, uh, which actually you know, sent a grenade into a whale, exploded inside its body, uh, which was you know, far more lethal and far less lethal for humans uh, because they could kill the whale often with one or two shots rather than having to tire it out uh, over a long period of time being attached to this gigantic dangerous creatures they had in sail whaling. So that was one of the major changes that took place. The other was the stern slipway, Rob, which you just mentioned. And uh, this was a, a classical industrial piece of technology, which allowed whales to be winched on board the whale ship, which really fundamentally changed the whole industry. It meant that you didn't have to process whales either on this in the ocean on the side of the ship as, you know, as, People did in, in Moby Dick, for example, or that you even had to go ashore and process whales at shore factories. What this meant was that you could stay out to sea with your, your mother ship, your factory, um, your factory ship and just process whales day after day after day. Uh, they'd be brought to you by a fleet of catcher boats taken, um, to the mother ship, winched up, uh, at the stern slipway and then a whole team, whole army of industrial workers would process that whale carcass uh, into the uh, products that people in the 20th century wanted, which increasingly was was margarine, um, mm. you know, butter substitute uh, that uh, was a, another technological innovation, the process of hydrogenation, which allowed people, a scientist, to inject hydrogen. I, I better not, maybe I won't go so firmly into the details of hydrogenation, but it allowed them to uh, to process whale meat in such a way that it was basically uh, stripped of any um, fishy flavor. People didn't even know they were eating margarine um, that had come from whales oftentimes. Uh, and this was the major driver behind uh, 20th century global industrial whaling. You also mentioned that uh, this allowed for the processing of the carcass to take place out of sight, right? This would mm. made it a little more hidden. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly not for those involved in it. For those involved in it, um, you know, you could you would see just uh, hundreds on on some days, literally hundreds of of whales uh, being processed. But it was it it allowed. The, the industry really did take place, well, first of all, in the Antarctic. The Antarctic started being hunted in the 1910s based on this new technology um, and, and then really peaked in the 20s and 30s so far away from where any humans lived that you would, you know, you'd get this product, this margarine, with really no sense of what kind of labor, um, what kind of danger, uh, what kind of slaughter had produced it. You know, we're Previously, I mean, whaling had always taken place uh, pretty far from shore, but it had always been, you know, pretty closely connected with shore industry as well, since you, had, you know, often processed the whales at sh- on shore, etc. Often hunted whales, um, in many cases that were not that far away from human populations. So, yeah, it it allowed it it really changed the industry in a lot of ways, making it, um, you know, in some ways far more mysterious for most people. And you mentioned, too, that the, the 20th century whaling also it impacted more species of whales right. uh, as compared to the 19th century. Yeah, you know, whales, a lot of whales are really hard to catch uh, without industrial technology. Uh, they're, they're fast. They can stay underwater for a long period of time. And you know, as with fishing, the 20th century just saw you know, a series of innovations that allowed people to overcome uh, you know, the whale's ability to escape, first of all, diesel engines, of course, uh, which are so much faster, allowed them to, to really run down any species they wanted to. Uh, then sonar um, after the Second World War came into uh, greater use. 
uh, airplanes, which allowed them to spot. You, you'd often on this mothership would have a, an, a, a helicopter or, or an airplane, but usually a helicopter pad where helicopters would take off and uh, search the area for whales, tell people where the large uh, agglomerations were, then they could chase them down with these really fast ships and then process them on board. I mean, you know, for whales, you can only imagine this was a you know, obviously devastating a suite of technologies they never faced predators like this um, on, the, on the scale or with this lethality they were really totally unprepared um, especially the big ones like blue whales and fin whales you know the two largest species on earth which really sustained the whaling industry from the 1910s through the 1960s yeah, in terms of what it was like for the whales, you described this as the breaking of their, their quote, cultures and families. Uh, can you uh, um, describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, thanks, Rob. This is one of the things I wanted to do with the book was was to, you know, I mean, the statistics can be numbing and mm-hmm. it feels like an industrial slaughterhouse, which, of course, it was in a lot of ways. But, they, you know, the whalers were catching wild animals, wild animals that had, as you know, scientists are telling us, these days, they've done incredible research into whale cultures, whale emotions, uh, whale behaviors. That you know, whales are complex creatures. They pass down a lot of the information necessary for their lives through cultural transmission. That is, they learn it from um, the other whales around them. It's not embedded genetically. Certain behaviors, migration routes, uh, feeding areas, feeding strategies, etc. And so it allows us to understand what, what was happening with this unprecedented onslaught, which was you know, not just the kind of devastation of a population, but, but also the, the loss of, of knowledge amongst whale communities. Uh, the, we have pretty clear evidence that whales, even as they've rebounded since the end of industrial whaling in the 80s, uh, have failed to recolonize certain areas, places that they used to go to, to give birth, to mate, to feed, etc. Uh, in part because there was just such a, a, a loss of cultural knowledge that was uh, part of this slaughter. You know, you killed so many nursing mothers, for example, right, who, ne- who f- then failed to pass on to their offspring certain important facets of what it meant to be a humpback whale. Uh, and so that that kind of knowledge um, reverberate that loss reverberates today. Uh, sperm whale mothers, for example, seem to be far less adept at keeping their calves alive uh, than they were before whaling. Um, it's surmised that this is you know, one of those knowledge losses that that happened as a result of industrial whaling. Uh, so we still see the impacts even as whale numbers are rebounding here in the 21st century. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, um... Red Leviathan is the secret history of Soviet whaling. Uh, mm-hmm. So getting a little bit into um, the history of Soviet whaling and also just the Russian history with whaling, uh, I'm always fascinated by a particular culture's relationship with the sea. And you discuss mm-hmm. this in the book uh, concerning uh, Russia. So how did Russia historically view the ocean and its resources? And how did this impact their involvement in whaling? Yeah, you know, Russia... It's such an interesting place to think about humans' relationship to the ocean. You, know, you think about Russia, it's this huge land uh, empire, which it is, of course, but it also has one of the longest coastlines in the world. And Russians have been interacting with whales you know, for a couple of thousand years uh, of all sorts of different species in the Pacific, in the Arctic, in the Baltic, any uh, ocean, you name it, the Russians uh, had had relationships with whales there. And I mean, I think the important thing for Russians was that they basically missed this period of, of sail whaling. Well, they didn't miss it exactly. They they saw themselves as victims in this period. Uh, Americans, British dominated that. They had the capital to sustain these long distance um, whaling expeditions. The Russians didn't. Uh, they were you know quite poor compared to Western European and America nations. And so what they saw is year after year, Americans coming to Siberian shores, for example, um, and doing whatever they wanted, uh, even though this was part of what Russia thought of as their own territory. Americans would come in, kill as many whales as they wanted, basically laugh at any kind of Russian attempts to stop them. They trade with uh, indigenous people, uh, Siberians, uh, who in many cases depended on, on whales for their own sustenance 
uh, Alaskans as well. You know, Russia uh, controlled part of Alaska in the 19th century. And, you know, from the Russian perspective, it's just outrageous. Uh, they, these capitalist whalers, Yankee whalers, as they called them, were, were destroying indigenous livelihoods. The Russians you know, really uh, actually cared about this. They were destroying whales that Russians would have liked to have made some money off of. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that really helped shape Russia's major entry into the industry. They came with, a, you could say, a lot of historical baggage into it. And uh, when, when Russia finally established its own whaling industry in the 1930s under Stalin, um, Joseph Stalin, uh, they... They thought of it not just as a, a, a way to industrialize the country, that was part of it, but as a way to kind of rectify this historical wrong uh, that their whaling industry was you know, Russia, finally Russia getting its share and finally able to sort of defend its own oceans against Americans, British and increasing the Norwegians as well. Now uh, you get into the the, the the mystery of whales uh, a mm -hmm. bit as well. Uh, I was taken by what you shared uh, about the the mystery of baleen whales, including a, a 10th century Russian poem mm. that concluded that the, uh, the the these whales fed on quote heavenly fragrances. Mm -hmm. uh, what are we to make of that? Yeah, whales are pretty mysterious creatures. Uh, they were for humans. Well, they still are in a lot of ways. You know, they spend. 99% of their life underwater. Uh, humans really only got to know them when they were washed up on shore or once they'd been harpooned. And so the, you know, whales lent themselves to a lot of mystery. Um, and you know, one of the, the interesting things that I found researching this book is, you know, the, the really important work that the Soviet Union did, especially as scientists and kind of, uh, unraveling some of these mysteries. You know, you, you read this poem. This was a, a great indication of uh, the, the really almost total ignorance of whales uh, that humans had uh, in the 10th century, but really up until the 20th century in a lot of ways. And, you know, the Soviets, they killed more whales than any country did after, after the Second World War. They also studied whales in greater depth than any other country did. Their, their scientists were on the whale ships, you know, digging through whale carcasses, watching whales as they were being hunted, uh, using captive dolphins for study. You know, the Soviet Union, as much as any country, really advanced our knowledge of what whales were. No one was talking about them feeding on heavenly mists <laughs> by the late 20th century. Uh, the Soviets were talking about them nearly going extinct, and they were some of the first to understand uh, how deep the crisis was as well. Yeah, so in this you're getting into into what you refer to in the book as the, the challenging contradictions mm -hmm. that you encounter, and sometimes you're encountering in, in interviews with Russian whalers and scientists. Right. Can you can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, you know, I came in. I, I, I wrote this book because I was horrified and shocked by a lot of things. I've just been talking about the numbers of whales killed, the the tr you know the the pain that whales felt, but. You know, to, to try to understand this and the role specifically that the Russian and the Soviet Union played, of course, I went out and I, I talked to people who had been on board these whale ships. I went to Ukraine and I went to I went to Moscow and Kaliningrad and other places and talked to people who had been part of this. And it was it was hard not to like them, frankly. You know, they're they're people who not only didn't think at the time that what they were doing was wrong. Many of them, um, some of them did. I, I should make that clear that, you know, some people were really disturbed um, by the whaling that they were doing. Many were not. And, you know, frankly, most people around the world didn't really care that whales were being killed for most of the time period. But, you know, not, not only that, but also that they were, you know, they were also really deeply interested in whales, you know, like myself, really fascinated by these creatures. And, uh, you know, when I talked to them, I talked to whale scientists, you know, they, 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 they wanted to talk. They, they were so, um, you know, they, they wanted to relive their experiences with whales. They expressed sympathy for these creatures, fascination for them. You know, I met some of really the, the, the greatest whale scientists probably of the 20th century, people who are still, uh, really, who still really care about whales, who, who tried to blow the whistle uh, in the Soviet Union about some of the, the illegal whaling that was taking place. And some of them, Turned out to be, um, 
you know, as you said, challenging contradictions. Uh, you know, one of one of the whale scientists that I really relied on for a lot of the information for this book is living in Odessa in Ukraine now, and um, you know, has been emailing me, telling me he can't wait for Russia to come uh, free Ukraine from the Nazis. You know, he's a deep Russian patriot uh, who really regrets the demise of the Soviet Union as well. You know, people who not not easy to, to pigeonhole them into um, easy dichotomies that we often uh, fall into when looking at Russia. So you, you touched a little bit already on the um, like the history of, of Russian whaling and their um, relationship with the resources of the sea uh, prior to the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But then what other reasons are pushing the Soviet Union then to pursue industrial whaling so strongly mm-hmm. during a time when other countries are dropping out of the practice? Yeah, yeah that was the crazy thing about this. And it, came, it, it was, really came through heartbreaking details. I was reading scientists' reports. You know, the Soviet Union uh, really expanded their whaling presence in the late 1950s and early 1960s, uh, just at a time, as you say, Rob, when the Norwegians were starting to drop out, the British were starting to drop out, uh, the Dutch were starting to drop out, the U.S. wasn't whaling anymore. Everyone saw the writing on the wall. Look, the large, profitable whales, we've wiped them out. You know, they're gone. It, it's not going to pay. And, you know, the Soviet Union, they... They had a, a real belief in the power of science. You know, this was a society that was had, had thrown off God, thrown off religion. It was going to rely on the expertise of people who yeah, weren't subject to those kinds of uh, those kinds of superstitions. You know, they were going to integrate all kind of economic planning uh, with ex- with experts. So they had a real belief that they were actually going to be really more responsible environmentally than other countries. So it was it was just bizarre to read. You know, the, they when the Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev was thinking about building, they thought about building nine new factories, floating factories in the in the 1950s. Um, which was you know what was going to make them the biggest whaling country on earth and they asked their scientists, you know, is this a good idea? Every scientist said no. They said like the oceans are in crisis, and they really were in the in the 1950s. It's easy to to forget just how we had exploited um, whale and fish stocks at that time, really recklessly. And Soviet scientists understood this perfectly. They were they were seeing it happen on board to a to a man, and they were all men at that time. They 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 advised uh, the Soviet economic planners like, "Don't do this. This is crazy." And what did they do? They said, okay, instead of nine, we'll build seven. They built seven new factory fleets, um, which, you know, dwarfed everyone except the Japanese uh, at a time, as I said, when people were getting out of this industry, justified logic. Uh, and it, it led to predictable disaster. You know, the Soviets, having built these, these huge fleets, uh, found that there weren't whales to catch. So they started catching the last of the whales that were prohibited. You know, and they really, you know, the special contribution that the Soviets made uh, was was catching those last few whales of the species that really didn't make any economic sense to catch. Uh, the Soviets, for the Soviets, though, uh, they had the capacity. They did it. They wiped out almost the last of the humpback whales in the southern hemisphere, the last of the southern right whales. So, um, you know, it's 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 hard to read that stuff and. It, it really feels like um, a kind of a tragic failure of the Soviet belief that, that science would really uh, make them able to, to, to operate more effectively in the world. You know, they, it could have worked. You know, the scientists told them the right thing. Uh, and they ended up uh, ignoring the advice really you know, to the great tragedy of the whales around the world. But they, they did end up sending scientists out on these ships as well. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, the Soviet Union had the, the largest net of whale scientists really in the world. And so, they, you know, they understood probably better than any country in the world what, you know, exactly how deep the crisis was with the world's whales. Um, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the difficult contra- contradiction here. 
So there were there were international quotas at the time, though, right? Um, how did how did this mm-hmm. play into Soviet whaling activity at the time? Yeah, right, Rob. So you know, the Soviet Union was one of the original signatories to the International Whaling uh, Convention that established the International Whaling Commission in 1946, and they they'd agreed to abide by quotas. Quotas, which at first were kind of laughably generous. Um, they wanted to make sure that whalers were still profitable, uh, but became increasingly restrictive over the years. And especially in the 1960s, they, they had some real teeth in them. And the Soviet Union pretended to abide by those quotas. They would come back and you know, every year, whaling nations would have to report how many whales they'd killed at the at the meeting of the IWC. And Soviet Union would do this. They'd, they'd make their reports. And uh, they started falsifying them in the 1950s, at first um, overstating the number of whales that they'd killed, uh, in part because they wanted to uh, to look like they were bigger whalers than they were, in part because they, you know, they wanted to establish a precedent for having killed this many. But then after they built these big fleets, they realized... You know, we we can't abide by any of this stuff. Um, we're to make any money from this at all. We're going to have to cheat wildly, and they did. Uh, and so, throughout the late fifties and sixties, uh, they'd come back from the Antarctic and say, uh, "We killed three hundred fifty humpback whales," and they'd killed twelve thousand. You know, that kind of just devastating numbers, uh, which. Uh, flummoxed people around the world, you know, whale scientists in Australia and New Zealand uh, who are monitoring local populations that migrated down to the Antarctic. Uh, starting in 59, they, 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 they saw that suddenly there were no whales coming back and they, they couldn't understand why. They Well, maybe there's some cheating going on, uh, but we'd have to, you know, there'd have to be tens of thousands of missing whales to explain what's happening. No one's cheating like that, but actually the Soviets were, uh, was an unbelievable crime, uh, really, and uh, was, was a tragedy, of course, uh, not only for whales, but, um, you know, for those who were studying and cared about them. Uh, one that wasn't unraveled uh, until the 1990s, you know, about 30, 40 years later. Uh, and it was thanks to those same Soviet scientists who, who uh, were really upset by this, and they kept their own figures. Uh, they they kept the real numbers in part because they they hated to see their science messed up by the fake numbers and in part because they really uh, cared about the future of whale stocks. Uh, and thanks to them, we actually know uh, the extent of what was going on. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, could you take us to uh, a pivotal point in the the international reaction to, to Soviet whaling, uh, the one that you touch on uh, several different times in the book, and that's the, the, the Greenpeace protest in 1975. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Greenpeace, people are probably familiar with the, with the organization. It's still around, of course, an important um, environmentalist organization. But they really got their start uh, as an anti-whaling group. They, they tried some anti-nuclear actions that were only mildly successful in the early 70s. But in 1975, they hit on this, this strategy of going out to the open ocean and locating whaling fleets and coming between them and their prey, trying to stop them from killing whales. And of course, most importantly, photographing this all, video recording it and letting the world know, letting the world see just how brutal industrial whaling was, you know, just uh, how, how awful it was to see these whales being killed. And so it's something Greenpeace called Mind Bomb, um, uh, crafting an image that would be so powerful that it would immediately sway global opinion. And they were pretty successful with this. Uh, this was a sort of groundbreaking moment in the history of global environmentalism. And it was the Soviets that they decided to target. It was one Soviet ship out of the Russian Siberian port of Vladivostok uh, that they located in June 1975 and um, was a a ship that had just been warned by Soviet authorities and especially Soviet scientists not to take undersized sperm whales. Um, Soviets were really nervous about bad publicity uh, that was caught red-handed by Greenpeace in this moment, um, taking sperm whales just off the coast of California uh, that were really small um, infants, really um, young sperm whales, maybe not infants. And uh, this was a, 
you know, for the Soviets as well, one of the turning points, you know, they, the, the negative press that they got was, was really pretty, um, pretty devastating for them. They didn't end whaling right away, but one could point to the Greenpeace confrontations. It's really the beginning of the end uh, for Soviet and industrial whaling um, as a whole. Now, how much of that came through to the Russian people at that time, or were they more or less cut off from any mm-hmm. of this in the media? Yeah, the, you know, the, the Soviet Union did its best to hide the confrontation from the Soviet people, but they had access to Western media, uh, Western radio reports, uh, to television. Uh, they could get some of that. And, you know, one of the things that was I found really interesting in the book was to trace Russian popular opinion around whaling. And it was really changing as well by the 1970s. You know, I give Greenpeace a ton of credit for, for saving the, the last of the whales, but that's, it's, not the, it's not the whole story. And, it, and it, the whole story really does connect to some of these same Soviet scientists who, by the 1970s, were publishing uh, a lot of their research in, you know, for domestic consumption. Soviet people love to read about the ocean. Um, they were totally intrigued by it, uh, and the this they loved they loved to read these popular scientific accounts. And what they were reading was was really uh, changing by the seventies. Soviet scientists were in some some ways kind of similarly to the West, kind of rethinking what whales were. And a lot of the popular publications at the time were talking about whales as humans' best friend. You know, they're 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 gentle creatures. Uh, they're useful. They're you know, dolphins are, are really loyal to humans, like like dogs. Like uh, this is one of the things that Soviet scientists were saying, and people were reading about uh, some of the Soviet Union's indigenous authors, people from Chukotka, a guy by the name of Yuri Ritkiu in particular, was was writing novels that really talked about whales from an indigenous perspective as sentient, um, intelligent creatures. And so Soviet people uh, really gaining this this really different view of whales, and it, it led them to question their own industry, uh, uh, even aside from what Greenpeace was doing. And it comes through quite, quite clearly. They they wrote letters to um, members of the Bolshevik Party, the Communist Party, demanding, for example, that the, the dolphin hunt be ended, which the Soviet Union did end it in 1966. Uh, well before um, the United States ended marine mammal hunting in 1972, and then increasingly letters to the to newspapers, you know, saying, "Hey, look, are we really adhering to the IWC conventions? Are we going to end whaling? What's going on here?" Putting a lot of pressure on the Soviet Union to end its way. And that's a big part of the, that has to be part of the explanation for why the Soviet Union ultimately agreed in 1987 to stop industrial whaling. It's a a combination of Western environmentalists and and some pressure from Russian people at home too. And did the the economic aspects of it play into it at all? Or was that or was the whaling industry kind of in, in the Soviet Union kind of insulated from like market forces? Yeah, they, it did play a role. Um, you know, Soviet whaling, it's unclear if they ever made any money off of it. Another, mm-hmm. the, well, like, I don't know, a tragedy in some way. Um, if, if they'd really cared about profits, they never would have built those huge fleets in the 60s. Uh, but the Soviet Union was entering into an, uh, an economic crisis by the 70s. And so these industries like the whaling industry, which were lavishly financed, um, people make great salaries in whaling, they begin to seem like more of a problem um, as the Soviet economy as a whole was slowing. And then by the early 80s, really lurching into a crisis. And so it, the economics did play a role. Yeah. So it was, you know, the Soviets like the Japanese by the early 80s were catching really small um, whales in comparison to the earlier catches, minke whales mostly, and some sperm whales. Uh, minkies are, you know, 20, 30-foot whale, and that's a lot less whale product than you got from a 80 to 100-foot blue whale back in the 1950s. So there, that was a part of, and and they, they, they were trying to economize on fuel and, 
definitely played a role in getting rid of the Soviet whaling industry. Um, but it had, had a long history of operating without much attention to profits or losses. Uh, so yeah, it, it is it is part of the explanation, but it's definitely not the whole explanation. So why are Soviets barely a part of the history of whaling, uh, as, mm-hmm. as you discuss in the book, despite mm-hmm. playing such a you know obviously significant role in it? Yeah, you know, I mean, part of it is because Soviets were pretty secretive about what they were doing. Uh, part of it is this period of industrial whaling. Um, yeah, but I don't think people really like to think back on it that much. It was a it was a grisly history. Uh, it was a depressing history. <laughs> There's no question about it. Uh, but I think you know maybe most of all, uh, this you know the Soviet Union, despite producing this really top notch research, uh, despite killing so many whales, uh, their scientists weren't allowed to travel around the world. Uh, share their research, uh, at least not until the 19, late 70s and early 80s. And so a lot of what they were doing, just uh, the world didn't know about, uh, for better or for worse. And you know, that's, that's part of what I wanted to do with this book, was to bring that back into uh, global attention and you know, account you know, for the destruction that the Soviet Union wreaked on our oceans. And, you know, I should... Mentioned there's look, it's not like just like they were doing this, you know, in some faraway corner of the earth. One of the things that struck me was, you know, the when I went to the ocean as a kid in, in the North Pacific on the coast of California and Oregon, you know, the lack of whales there. Well, this was part of the Soviet Union's legacy. Um, they were killing whales just offshore, as were the Japanese, you know, as had American whaling stations as well. Um, but the Soviet Union was impacting my own history. Here, uh, so I thought it was really important to, to to understand how and why it had done this on a you know for the for the globe, not just for those interested in Russia, uh, but also to give you know to give the Soviets their due, especially in the way that they advanced our knowledge of whales. Uh, they made really important contributions. Uh, we wouldn't understand whales the, the way we do without. Uh, the work of their scientists um, who, who did you know really incredible stuff not 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 just in understanding whale behavior which was their main focus uh, but also in in keeping the records that we have today of, of exactly how many whales were killed in the 20th century as well yeah I want to stress to, to our, our readers that even though the, the subject matter is is grim in in, in many uh, in, in many cases uh, like the book is not just one endless horror show there's uh, you know there, there's there's so much fascinating uh, content about the the people involved uh, the mm-hmm. cultures involved in the uh, in, in, in this in the science of whales um, so I want to I want to stress that to everyone and and also you you do specifically mention you know that there is there is light in an otherwise dark tale mm-hmm. right I appreciate that, Rob. Yeah, so you know the book. The book does chronicle a lot of whales being killed. Yeah, this is fundamentally kind of a. I mean, I term one chapter the whale genocide. This is the story of a number of species of creatures which had really flourished on this planet for a long time, um, carved out a really successful niche for themselves. Really suddenly facing extermination, and part of the book is you know is chronicling that. And trying to understand how whales uh, did survive through this, if barely. But the other part of it, Rob, is exactly as you say. You know, it's a um, people lived rich lives even as they were, you know, destroying these creatures. And and actually, you know, the Soviet whaling industry allows us a kind of look at, you know, some of the really really um, messed up, um, cynical aspects of Soviet life, but also some of the great dreams that people had and some of the ways that they really found meaning uh, in the communist project. Um, through their own work, uh, through adventure um, in the ocean, you know, th- th- through through real scientific accomplishment, you know, there's uh, I I use this story as a way to to think about what life was like in the Soviet Union, all all of its really horrible and wonderful aspects, and like like any human society, you know, had both, and it comes out pretty clearly in the way that people made. Um, you know, some really, really meaningful lives for themselves aboard whale ships, 
go getting to see the world, uh, getting to know these creatures that they were killing um, in, in really unsurpassed detail. Uh, and also, you know, the, the real pain that a lot of whalers themselves experienced trying to reconcile all the great you know, experiences they were having with the with the, the fact that they were destroying these families of whales uh, and they couldn't they couldn't get you know, they couldn't overlook that fact. All right. The book is Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling. It's out now in physical and digital formats. Um We've uh, we've been chatting with Ryan Tucker Jones. Ryan, thank you for coming on the show. Rob, thanks for having me. All right, thanks once more to Ryan Tucker Jones for chatting with me about the new book Red Leviathan: The Secret History of Soviet Whaling. You can get it right now in physical or digital formats. Uh, definitely, if you're if if you're interested in anything that we discussed in, in this episode. Definitely pick up a copy of this book. Uh, it's a wonderful read. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core episodes publish every Tuesday and Thursday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, you'll find our listener mail episodes. On Wednesdays, we tend to put out a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Uh, thanks, as always, to Seth Nicholas Johnson for producing this episode episode. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything, uh, this episode, future episodes, past episodes, you can do so by emailing us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.